Well, I invite you to take your Bible and let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. One last time. Galatians chapter 3. There are some things in life that we just can't afford to get wrong. Because even little mistakes have a way of producing big consequences. For example, a happy couple from Minneapolis decided to vacation in Florida on a particularly frigid, icy winter. They made plans to stay in the same hotel where they had enjoyed their honeymoon 20 years before. Unfortunately, due to conflicting work schedules, they had to stagger their travel plans with the husband flying down on a Thursday and the wife following on Friday. The husband checked into the hotel and noticed that there was a computer in the room. So he sat down and he decided to send his wife an endearing email. However, He accidentally left out one little letter in her email address, and he sent the message to someone else. Meanwhile, in Houston, Texas, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a Baptist pastor who had just gone to be with the Lord after a sudden heart attack. And so this precious widow sat down to check her email, expecting to find a few comforting messages from family and friends. After reading the first message, she screamed out loud, fell out of her chair, and fainted. Hearing the commotion, her son ran into the room, found his mother on the floor, saw the computer screen, and read the following message. To my loving wife, I have arrived. I know you are surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now, and you are allowed to send emails to your loved ones. When I checked in, I made sure they have everything prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) I am looking forward to seeing you again soon. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. It sure is hot down here. (laughs) I share that with you. Because since we started our study in Galatians 3, I have said repeatedly that this little letter is all about one thing and one thing only, and that is getting the gospel right. It's about getting the gospel right. In life, you can afford to get a lot of things wrong, but beloved, the one true gospel, the one way of salvation, this is the one thing in your life that you must get right right. You cannot afford to get this wrong because even the littlest mistake can produce big consequences. And your eternal destiny depends on it. Today we are going to conclude Galatians 3, where Paul has been arguing for that precious doctrine, the doctrine of justification through faith alone. The churches in Galatia had been polluted with a false gospel and Paul has been pounding the pulpit hard all through this letter, saying that salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Period. It has always been that way since the very beginning, because that is the only way for sinners like us to become righteous and holy before a righteous and holy God. So let's begin with the reading of God's word this morning in Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. 
Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The title of this morning's message is The Justified Life, One in Christ. We will spend most of our time looking at verses 26 through 29. But before we do, I, I want us to focus here on these other verses, these introductory verses, verses 23 and 25 because they are incredibly important, and they're worth our attention this morning. These verses, they set the ball, but they also act as a bridge from one argument to another. It's a strong finish to a strong chapter. They finish one thought before seamlessly transitioning into another. But we need to see how they carry Paul's argument along for justification by faith. And so we will begin with a high-level overview of the entire text before zeroing in and drilling down into the last of these final verses. And like a good preacher, Paul wraps up this section by answering that immortal question, so what? So what? I mean, gospel truth is only powerful in a person's life in so much as it is lived and applied. And we should always be asking ourselves that question, so what? How does this verity affect my life? What should my response be to this body of truth? Now that I've heard the word of the Lord, what difference does it make? What difference should it make in my life? Well, here in Galatians 3 and the first nine chapter, or in the first nine verses, Paul begins by saying that salvation begins and ends with faith. In verses 10 through 14, he says that the law curses, but Christ became the curse for us so that we might be saved through faith. In verses 15 through 18, he talks about the promise given to Abraham, the man of faith, and how that promise has not been trumped by the law. It hasn't been set aside or nullified. And then last time that we were here in Galatians, we saw that the intended purpose of the law in verses 19 through 22 was not so much to replace the promise or push it aside or nullify it or or make it obsolete, but rather the purpose of the law was to reveal our sin and how limited the law is compared to the promise. Because the law was never intended to give life. It was never intended to save people. It had a completely different purpose. It was delivered to reveal our sin and point us to Christ. As the last half of verse 22 says, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Galatians 3 is saturated And you may want to circle these words or underline them or just point to them, even. Just let your eyes fall on them on the page. Because there are two words that appear over and over and over again within this chapter. Faith and Christ. Faith and Christ. And now we get to the so what. 
What does faith alone in Christ alone produce? What does it do? Well, it produces a justified life. A justified life. And Paul covers all of it. In verses 23 and 24, we see the justified life before Christ came. Before Christ came. In verse 25, we see the justified life after Christ came. And then finally, the bulk of our study this morning in verses 26 through 29, the justified life in Christ today. In Christ today. I hope this high-in-the-sky overview is both helpful and obvious from the text itself as you look at your Bible today in your lap. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 in the justified life before Christ came. Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Notice he says, until the coming of faith, in verse 23, and until Christ came, in verse 24. And with each verse, he provides an illustration for how the law leads us to Christ. First, the jailer, in verse 23, and then the guardian, in verse 24. So the jailer, keeping us imprisoned until faith was revealed. Now, Nobody likes being a prisoner, right? I mean, very few people really enjoy being locked up and being put away in prison. Like you, I'd rather be free than stuck in jail. However, it's not always a bad thing to be incarcerated, and it's good for us to remember that. For example, many years after Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, he was arrested in Jerusalem and placed in a Roman garrison. While he was under arrest, Acts 23.12 says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. It's pretty bad. It's pretty intense. The next verse says that there were more than 40 men who made this conspiracy. Paul was not a well-liked man in the Jewish community. There were a lot of people who were out for blood and really did not appreciate the message that he had to give. But when this plot was uncovered, the Roman commander called for a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to escort Paul to Caesarea. Close to 500 men just to protect Paul. He was still a prisoner, but God used his captors to save his life and even have him delivered safely to Rome. In a similar way, the law kept the Jews under its protective custody. It watched over them, and it kept them safe until it would eventually lead them to Christ. And this is true both historically for the Jews, but, friends, this is also true personally for us. It's true for us before salvation in Christ. The Holy Spirit says through Paul that we are the inmates, and the law is our jailkeeper. The law punishes us, it protects us, and it prepares us for Christ. That's the first illustration, a a jailer. Next, we see that the law is a guardian. The word for guardian here in our text is pedagogue. It's where we get the word pedagogy. In Greek culture, the pedagogue was a slave who raised the children of a wealthy family. The child fell under the guardian's care from the time that they turned six until somewhere in early adolescence. 
During that time, their pedagogue was a babysitter. He was their chaperone, their tutor, their protector, and their corrector. Ancient drawings typically would depict the pedagogue as holding a stick or a cane for discipline because he was the one who would discipline the child. Now, if you're reading along in the King James translation this morning, you'll see the word schoolmaster there on the page. And while that's not a, that's not a bad translation, that's okay, it could still be a little misleading because the pedagogue wasn't primarily a teacher, and he most certainly wasn't a school teacher. He did help the child review his lessons and take the boy to school. He helped feed and dress the child and carry his, his ancient school books, so to speak, a tablet, a scroll, and typically a musical instrument. But once they would arrive at school, the pedagogue would wait in a special room, in a pedagogue room, until the child's lessons were over and it was time to go home. Because the pedagogue wasn't really an educator as much as he was a disciplinarian. Often a tight bomb would form between the guardian and the child because the guardian provided protection as well as discipline. You didn't want to bully a guy who had a strong pedagogue because he carried that big stick for a reason. They also served as a moral tutor who would help shape the child's ethics. So what Paul is saying here in this text is that in the plan of salvation, the law is the pedagogue that raised the Jews from childhood through adolescence. It it wasn't a schoolmaster teaching them how to get better and better until they were eventually good enough to be accepted by God. That's not what the law did. That's how many of the Jews looked at the law. But instead, it was a disciplinarian telling God's people what to do and then punishing them for failing to do it. That's what the law did. Beloved, the law does the same thing for us. It's no different. This is the justified life before Christ, the object of our faith, came. Now let's look at verse 25, the justified life after Christ came. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, the funny thing about pedagogues is that they eventually work themselves out of a job, don't they? I mean, when a child comes of age, they no longer need constant supervision. An ancient Greek writer named Xenophon once wrote, When a boy ceases to be a child and begins to be a lad, others release him from his pedagogue and from his teacher. He is then no longer under them, but is allowed to go his own way. And in the same way, that's how the law treats us. The law is needed, it's necessary, in many ways, until the coming of Christ. And now that Christ has come, now that the promised object of faith for salvation and sanctification has come, our relationship with the law has changed. The law is no longer our jailer. It's no longer punishing us, protecting us, and preparing us for Christ. And it's no longer our guardian, tutoring and correcting us and disciplining us for Christ. We are no longer held captive under the condemnation of sin and imprisoned by guilt. But friends, let's not forget that the law is still powerful and the law is still active and the law still serves its purpose well, even today, especially for those who have not come to Christ. You might remember from the last time that we were in Galatians together The law and the promise of salvation through faith, they work side by side, and they serve two very different functions. 
The law was never intended to save, but it was added alongside the promise. It was added to the promise to reveal sin and convince men of their very real need for a good Savior. God's righteous standard reveals our failure and judges us for our cosmic treason against a holy God. That's what it does. The law itself, though, is righteous, it's holy, and it is good. Because it reflects the character and the moral benchmark for right living with God. And because of that, friends, it condemns everyone. It condemns everyone. Because we are all sinners. Every last one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are good enough. None of us have ever been good enough. None of us have ever met a person good enough. Because we are all sinners. And we have all broken God's law. So let's never forget that by itself, the law cannot save. However, it can and it does lead us to a Savior. Martin Luther once wrote, The true use of the law is this, that I know that by the law I am being brought to an acknowledgement of sin and am being humbled so that I may come to Christ and be justified by faith. There's chapter 3 in a nutshell. That's what Paul has been arguing for all along in this chapter. Church, this is why it is so important for people to know God's law. And this is why it is so important for us to call sin, sin, whatever that sin is. I mentioned last time that this is why the gospel we preach doesn't begin with, smile, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Because you can't truly accept the good news without first coming to grips with the really, really bad news. We need a jailer. As, as strange as it sounds, we need a guardian until the Holy Spirit regenerates us from death to life and we are born again into Christ and into the family of God. We need imprisonment. We need guilt. We need the sting of humility and the fear of condemnation because without it, we think that we're fine when we're not. And if we've convinced ourselves that we're okay, then who really needs a Savior anyway? Do you need a Savior? I know I don't. If I think I'm okay, if I'm fine before God, if I'm one of His children, if He's going to accept me regardless of what I say or do, regardless of who I am, whether I'm one of His or not, if that's your attitude this morning, then you are sorely mistaken. Sorely mistaken. I like how one commentator summarizes this whole section. He writes, God used the law to shut us up in prison until Christ should set us free, or to put us under tutors until Christ should make us sons. I like that. And with that, Paul seamlessly transitions into the justified life in Christ today. Verses 26 through 29 provide This thrilling climax to chapter 3. I mean, think about it. Chapter 3 begins with what? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And since then, we have looked at curses and judgment and covenants and blood and guts and animals cut in two and angels and sin and righteousness and the law. And it has all been building up to this deafening declaration of truth here at the end. At the end of the chapter... That we are all one in Christ. 
Paul has been fighting the Judaizers this whole time, reminding them and reminding these confused Christians that justification is by faith alone. And now that Christ, the object of saving faith, has come, he provides here in our text four spiritual blessings for the believer. Four verses, four spiritual blessings we have in Christ now that faith has come. And he begins with our inclusion with Christ. Our inclusion with Christ. Look at verse 26. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The first thing we notice here is that not everyone is a child of God. He does not say everyone everywhere is a child of God. He says you, you are all sons of God. And the you here refers back to verses 24 and 25. He is speaking of those of us who have been confronted by the law, convicted of our sin. The law has become our guardian and has led us to Christ. And having placed our faith in Christ, we are now children of God. Contrary to popular belief, it is only those who are in Christ Jesus through faith who have truly become children of God. Back in verse 7, Paul says that every believer is a child of Abraham. Here he takes it a step further. He cranks it up a notch. And he says that every believer is a child of the Most High God. As we move from being under a guardian to having the full rights of sons and daughters. I love how another commentator puts it here. He says, We are no longer minors under the restraint of a tutor, but sons of God and heirs of his glorious kingdom, enjoying the status and privileges of grown-up sons. Grown-up sons. This was the message that these struggling and confused Christians here in, in the churches of Galatia, this is what they needed to hear. So desperately. And this is a really well-placed exhortation for Paul to, to put here in this letter. For him to begin with, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Smacking them across the side of the head and saying, What's wrong with you? For him to begin that way and then to end like this. Because let's not forget that the Judaizers were preaching a false gospel. One that declared that you had to look like a Jew and you had to act like a Jew in order to really be saved and sanctified. Rather than rely on grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, these Judaizers taught that you need to earn it, or at the very least deserve it, in order for it to go into effect. By putting yourself back under the Mosaic law, and observing all the festivals and the dietary restrictions and the circumcision and the like, only then will you truly be saved. And only then can you know that you're saved. But Paul is saying that both Jews and Gentile Christians are all children of God through faith in Christ alone, no exception. No exception. In the Greek language, authors would typically place the most important word at the beginning of the sentence. Theologians and pastors like to refer to this spot as the emphatic position. Not that any of you are taking notes on that or care, but I just want to let you know that's what we call it, the emphatic position. Here in verse 26, the first word that we find here in our verse is all. All. Paul's emphasis 
is on the all, that every believer who has trusted in Christ for salvation is a child of God. The gospel is for Gentiles as well as for Jews, and the privileges of sonship are for all of the redeemed. And essentially, the doctrine that Paul is referring to here is the doctrine of divine adoption. That we have been included with Christ into the divine family. And this is a beautiful metaphor, and it's one of Paul's favorites that he would use over and over again throughout Scripture. He uses this illustration in Romans, Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And again, in verse 23 of that same chapter, he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul uses this metaphor again in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. We heard that this morning already during the worship and in the praise time. He says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. But even here in Galatians, just a few sentences later, in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he will write, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption. Adoption as sons. Adoption is the act of bringing someone else's child into your home to become a member of your family. And that is exactly what God has done for us. He has legally brought us into his household. He has given us his last name. He has made us a part of his family. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we, receive, we are received into a number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Legally speaking, an adopted child becomes a real member of the family. And this doctrine of adoption it illustrates in a vivid way the contrast between salvation through faith and trying to earn our place at the table. It, it provides a vivid contradiction or contrast between those two concepts because no one works their way into the family. A servant can only move so high in the ranks of their duties and privileges, but they will never enjoy the benefits that come with being a real member of the family. And that's why John, overwhelmed with gratitude, writes in 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I mean, think about that for a moment. What love God has showered upon us, that he would adopt us into his divine family, that we could be children of God. Our inclusion with Christ is so important, and it is such an encouraging spiritual blessing that every believer has. And it is the first in our list of spiritual blessings that we have here in Christ. Number two, the second blessing Paul highlights is our integration with Christ. Our integration 
with Christ. Look at verse 27. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Not only have we been included with Christ, we've been integrated with him. And we have been baptized into him. Now it is important to point out, and I would hope this would go without saying, there is no water found in this verse. Okay, this is a dry verse. Even though you see the word baptize, sometimes our, our, in our imaginations we might think of water, but there's no water here in this verse. Some have argued that Galatians 3.27 supports the view of that water baptism is somehow necessary for salvation. Or that water baptism is the means that God uses to apply salvation. But friends, ironically, that is the exact wrong-headed way of thinking that Paul has been fighting against in this whole letter. He's not going to go to war for the purity of the gospel and say that circumcision doesn't save you, eating the right foods doesn't save you, obeying the law doesn't save you, but oh, guess what? Getting dunked in water does. He's not going to do that. Of course not. Meganoito. May it never be. Even in the previous verse that we just read before this one, he has just finished telling us that we are saved. How? In Christ Jesus through faith. Period. So if Paul is not talking about water baptism here, what is he talking about? If water baptism doesn't save us, then what do you mean, Paul? What's the point? When he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does he mean? Well, the Greek word baptizo simply means to immerse, submerge, or plunge. The other softer word for baptize, bapto, appears four times in the Greek New Testament. It means to dip, or to dip into, or to dye. Not D-I-E, D-Y-E. To dye is to stain or colorize a garment. Baptizo is an intensive form of bapto, referring to an immersion that is plunged, that's submerged, that's completely saturated. So what Paul is saying here is that a spiritual baptism occurs where we are immersed into Christ, where we are plunged into Christ, where we are saturated with Christ. And this is not isolated to this passage. This is found all throughout the New Testament. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit you were all baptized. And he can say this. He can write this with clarity of conscience and thought to all believers. He can say, For in one spirit you were all baptized, whether they've been dunked in water or not, into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see, The baptism that unites us with Christ is spirit baptism. A lot of people carry around a lot of confusion when it comes to baptism because they don't understand the different usages of baptism throughout the New Testament. I just read from 1 Corinthians 12. Let's turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians 10. Just a couple of of letters over to the left. 1 Corinthians 10. Speaking of the Jewish people in their time in the wilderness, he says in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, we remember that part of the story, right? 
They all passed through the sea. But look at what he says next. And all were baptized into Moses. There's that word again. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this is obvious. This is obvious that he's not talking about immersion in water because Exodus tells us clearly that the people crossed the sea on dry ground. Okay, if anyone experienced a water baptism that day, it was Pharaoh's army because they were the ones that were plunged and submerged in the sea after the waters came crashing back to the way that they were before. But 1 Corinthians 10.2 says it was the Jews who were baptized. So this is a dry baptism. This is a spiritual baptism as they followed Moses. He even goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, he says that they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. Now let's go back another book to the book of Romans. Romans, just a little bit more to the left. Romans chapter 6, and starting in verse 1. He asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May genoito, by no means. May it never be, certainly not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Friends, again, these verses are about a spiritual baptism, a spiritual reality, something that actually does happen in the spiritual realm on our behalf. This is a work of God that joins us to Christ, identifies us with Christ, and combines us with Christ. It associates us with Christ, and it disassociates us from our former way of life. In the very next verse, Romans 6, 5, Paul says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Beloved, water baptism doesn't save you. But spiritual baptism, that work of God that unites you with Christ, does. That does save you. God uses faith, not water, to save people. I hate to break it to you, but I hope at this point in the book of Galatians it's clear that we are saved how, folks? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so looking back at our text here in Galatians 3, this baptism or submersion into Christ so unites us with him that Paul says, you have also put on Christ. You have put on Christ. Some translators say you have clothed yourselves with Christ. It has often been said that clothes make the man. Well, that's certainly true when it comes to our union with Christ. If you were to visit Scotland, one of the first things you would notice is a lot of sheep. And if you pulled over for a while and you looked at the flock, sooner or later you would see a lamb running around the field with an extra fleece tied to its back. It's not a zombie sheep. Okay? There's a reason for that little lamb to have another fleece or to be wearing the skin of another sheep. 
It just typically means that that lamb is an orphan and that its mother has died. And when a mother sheep passes away, the lamb will often die too because their source of protection and food is gone. If you try to introduce the orphan to another mother, she won't recognize the lamb's scent. And she'll push it away because she knows that that baby doesn't belong to her. But thankfully, most flocks are large enough to have a mama sheep that recently lost a lamb. And so the shepherd will then skin that dead lamb and make its fleece into a covering for the orphan. And then he takes the lamb to the mother and whose baby had just died. And this time, now, when she smells that baby lamb, she smells her own lamb and she accepts it as one of her own. In a similar way, we have become acceptable to God by being clothed with Christ. Or to illustrate it another way, let's just imagine for a moment that your left hand represents Christ. Okay? This is Christ, your left hand. And let's also imagine that your right index finger represents you. Now, completely wrap your left hand around your finger. What do you see? What do you see? You see Christ. You see Christ and not yourself. Just Christ. Because Christ is covering you. That's how union with Christ works. When you've been spiritually baptized into Christ, he covers you with himself and with his righteousness. So much so that when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees his Son. Because you have put on Christ. You have been clothed with Christ. You have been integrated with Christ. So Paul showcases that here. He has already shown us our inclusion with Christ and our integration with Christ. Spiritual blessing number three is our identity with Christ. Our identity with Christ. Look at verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 is one of those familiar verses that have often been quoted, but rarely understood in its proper context. Somehow, this has become a favorite life verse for those who despise male leadership in the church. After all, there is no longer any male or female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. So, doesn't it stand to reason that male leadership is just an antiquated, misogynistic, sexist construct? that the church itself has somehow formed and put together over the years. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that stated regarding this particular verse. Well, honestly, I'm not going to waste a lot of time trying to untie that knot of stinking thinking today. Because frankly, church, that is not what this verse is about at all. Let's talk about what this verse really means. Let's talk about what Paul intends with this verse Because I hope it's obvious by now, as we have been slowly walking together through this chapter, verse by verse, following Paul's argument and and, and all of his arguments here in their proper context, I hope you see that Paul is not randomly jumping ship here to talk about something else that's way out there in left field, and certainly contradicts what he's written and said and stated very clearly in other books of the Bible. That's not what Paul is doing here. What he is simply saying, if you just follow the flow of thought and the argumentation here in the text, he is simply saying that the things that divide us the most 
as human beings do not exist in Christ. That's what he's saying. He made a similar statement in Colossians 3.11. He wrote there, Here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. To put it another way, our union with Christ establishes our communion with each other. That's the point that Paul is making in this passage. And he mentions the very things that divide us the most. Race, rank, and sex. The three things that divide us the most. Race, rank, and sex. Much like today, these divisions polarize the ancient world. Socrates has been credited for coming up with a famous prayer in which a Greek man cites, Thank God that I was born a human being and not a beast. Next, a man and not a woman. Thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. And the Jews were not much better. There's a Jewish benediction from the first century that says, Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. You'll find signs of struggle in each of these spheres all throughout human history. Everything that we experience today, all of the prejudice, all of the injustices, all of the sexism, everything that we see today, all of those things that should make our skin crawl because they are so filthy and ugly and they are the worst of us as human beings, they have always been here. They're not new. They're not new inventions. And as much as we like to think that history is moving somewhere, we're progressing towards something good, we're not. We are on a continual, secular spiral of sin. And we continue to go down, 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 not upwards, folks. Because that's how we're wired. These are the things that divide us naturally. They always have, and they will, but Christ. But Christ. Jew against Greek, slave against free, man against woman, and so forth. These walls are everywhere. But the Bible says that these dividing walls don't exist in the family of God because you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen, in the kingdom of God, there are no second-class citizens. And in the family of God, there are no second-class children. When it comes to salvation, we are equal under the law, and we are equal in the gospel. Because of sin, we all need salvation, and we are all unable to save ourselves. I I love how Philip Graham Ryken puts it. He writes, We all need the same cross and the same empty tomb. We all need the same atoning death and the same bodily resurrection. In a word, we all need the same Christ. Once you have come to him by the same faith, it is Christ for all and all in Christ. This is just one of the many reasons why Paul is so passionate in his fight against the Judaizers. They were establishing boundary lines within the church. They were putting the Jews on one side and picketing Gentiles on the other. And they were saying that, that by imposing circumcision even, I mean, even that, circumcision was only for the men. So even there, they were excluding the women 
of the congregation. And Paul says, no, no, your identity in Christ levels the playing field when it comes to status. Our differences remain, yes. Jews don't cease to be Jews. Greeks are still Greeks. Slaves are still slaves. Free men are still free. Men are still men and women are still women. Ethnic, social, and sexual distinctions still exist. But because we are in Christ, these distinctions no longer divide us. They no longer divide us. One commentator writes, We have the best and the truest fellowship when we recognize our diversity, but see it as less important than our unity in Christ. Church, we can and should have unity where others don't. Because the source of our unity comes from our identity with Christ. That's the third spiritual blessing that we see listed here in our text. Paul has shown us our inclusion with Christ, our integration with Christ, and our identity with Christ. Finally, he brings it all back around to our inheritance with Christ. Our inheritance with Christ. Look at verse 29. He says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Again, if you belong to Christ, you are both a child of God and a child of Abraham. And that means that you get to enjoy all the promises of all of them. Paul says, if you are Christ, that is, if you belong to Christ, if you are his property and you identify with him, then you are one of Abraham's spiritual children. And that means that you are an inheritor or a beneficiary of the promise. We have already looked at the promise extensively as we began our journey here in Galatians 3. This promise was first received in Genesis 12, it was ratified in Genesis 15, and and it was restated over and over again in chapters 13, 17, and 22, and so forth. It was through this promise, God said to Abraham, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. All the families of the earth. And Paul is simply saying, that's you. That's you, that's me, that's us. All the families of the earth. It is through Abraham's physical offspring, as we saw earlier in chapter 3. It is through that singular offspring who is Christ. Because of him, pig-eating Gentiles like us can be blessed. According to that promise, God did not say that only one people group would be blessed. He said the whole world, all the people groups would be blessed. And that includes us. There's... So much more to be said here, but I'll wrap things up for the sake of time. As I mentioned earlier, not everyone is a child of God. Liberal theology once taught the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. This idea that all mankind, that we are all brothers and sisters because God has created every single one of us. And in one sense, that's true. God does care for all of his creatures, and we do belong to a common humanity. However, the privileges of sonship are not given to everyone. Not everyone has those privileges. Only those who are saved through faith in Christ Jesus receive the spiritual blessings that are listed here in these verses. God is the ruler of all, the creator of all, the judge of all, but he is only the father of the one true Son, Jesus Christ, 
and those who are in Christ through faith. Through faith. And let's not fool ourselves either. According to the Bible, before faith in Christ, we were all children of the devil. John 8.44 We were all sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.3 But thankfully, according to Galatians 3.26, as we have looked at this morning, in Christ Jesus and only in Christ, you, those of faith, are, present tense, all, without exception, sons of God through faith. So here's the critical question. Are you a child of God? Have you been adopted into this family? Have you been baptized into Christ? Have you put on Christ? Have you been covered by Christ? Do you belong to Christ? And if your answer is no, then you are not only missing out on the blessings and privileges that we have looked at today, you are in certain danger of receiving God's wrath and paying the full penalty for your own sins for the rest of eternity. So if you know that you are not in Christ today, then I invite you to speak with myself or another believer as soon as possible. Don't let another day go by without coming to Christ for salvation. Don't do it. It is not worth it. And as we close the book for now here on chapter 3, again, I just want to remind all of you of these two words that Paul loves to repeat here over and over again, faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Even in our text, faith is mentioned once in verse 24, once in verse 25, and again in verse 26. And even more so, Christ himself. He is mentioned once in verse 24, once in verse 26, twice in verse 27, once again in verse 28, and again in verse 29. Six times in six verses. Listen, There is only one gospel of salvation. There is only one Lord and Savior, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is only found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. This is the one thing, church, that we cannot afford to get wrong. If there was ever a hill worth dying on, this is it. This is our hill. This is the one that we do die on. We go to the mat for this truth, for this doctrine. There are many things that we can disagree upon, even as believers, but we cannot afford to get this wrong. We can't. We have to get this right. And so it is my prayer that everyone in this room will embrace this gospel, share this gospel, and defend this gospel as the grown-up children of God and Abraham who have been made righteous in Christ. How? Through faith alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and the love that you have showered upon us, that you have adopted us into your divine family. When we were enemies, when we were hostile towards you, you decided to send your son, and he was obedient even unto death on a cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the riches and the wonders of your salvation that you have offered for us, that you have accomplished for us on our behalf. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is not in you, that you would, that you would draw men unto yourself, that you would save men this morning and women according to your 
according to your precious timetable. Lord, I pray that you would draw men and women unto yourself. I pray that you would stir in hearts. I pray that hearts would be softened and not hardened against you and your gospel. Lord, use your law for its intended purpose. Bring men to a point of guilt. Bring men to a point of recognition of their sin. Make it uncomfortable for them. And save them by pointing them to a savior. Bring them to that point of maturity where they no longer need a guardian, but they are ready to walk in freedom and newness of life. Lord, thank you for these spiritual blessings that we have seen. Thank you for the identity that we have in you, for breaking down those walls of hostility between Jew and Greek, for breaking down all of those prejudices that come with rank and with sex. Lord, we know that in you, we are one. I pray that we would live in light of that reality. I pray that we would grow deeper and deeper in you, and in so doing, that we would grow deeper and deeper in love with each other, and that you would bind us together with cords of unity that cannot be broken. Lord, you are so good, you are so kind, and you are so gracious, and you have given us so many great spiritual blessings in you. I pray for each person this morning who has been baptized into you, who has been clothed in you, who is one of yours, who has been adopted into the divine family and is one of your children, as we look forward to receiving that inheritance, that blessed inheritance, the realization and the promise. Lord, I pray that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged, despite whatever we've experienced already this year. I pray that you would lift our heads and that we would see you and that we would have the strength to persevere and to go on for your glory as we wait and long for that day when we will see you face to face. Again, Lord, you are worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. And we give all of ourselves to you in your name. Amen.